You ever get to a place after you've dealt with a problem or an issue that's been tough and difficult and you think you're past it and then all of a sudden it comes roaring back, gets right in the middle of your life once again. Oftentimes that brings you to a crossroads. A crossroads where things are going to move one way or another. Things are going to go forward or they're going to go backwards. Well, this morning we come to Acts chapter 15 and we come to a crossroads. Acts chapter 15 is located at the very center of the book of Acts between chapters 1 and 28. And the fact that it's at the center also brings us to the point where a central Christian truth is confronted and challenged and is in danger. The gospel itself is in danger of being compromised, corrupted, and destroyed in chapter 15 of Acts. Now, Peter plays a critical role in the debate over the gospel here. But then he fades from the scene, never to be seen in the book of Acts again. Whereas after, after Acts 15, Paul's mission and ministry to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles, takes center stage. This is also one of the last times Luke features the Jerusalem church. And like Peter, while the church plays a key role in this gospel controversy, after this it fades into the background. While the center of church action and activity moves from Jerusalem and Jewish conversions to the Gentile city of Antioch and Gentile conversions. There are two important reasons Luke records these events. First, it demonstrates the unshakable and uncompromising commitment of the church to the purity of the gospel that is now being taken to the ends of the earth, taken to all the nations of the world in fulfillment of Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1 and in fulfillment of the purpose and plan of God as declared to Abraham in Genesis. In Acts 15, Paul, Peter, and Jesus' brother James, along with all the other elders present from the Jerusalem church, affirm a totally grace-based gospel. It's the gospel that excludes works of any kind being involved in salvation. It's a grace-based, works-free gospel. Secondly, this chapter helps us to understand how to bring gospel grace to bear and in love count others as more important than ourselves in the exercise of our freedom in Christ. Follow along as I read verse 1 of chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Remember the previous chapter, chapter 14, we just concluded with Paul and Barnabas returning from their two-year missionary journey. And as we left them, they were continuing to minister and teach at the church in Antioch in Syria. But in verse 1 of chapter 15, the peace of the church is disturbed by some men who come from Judea, the region of Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas, on their missionary journey, had faced external challenges to the gospel. Now they have to deal with an internal attack upon the gospel, an attack that comes from inside the church. These men are not disputing that Gentiles belong in the church. But they are saying that in addition to believing in Christ, 
you must be circumcised to be saved. They're teaching the people and saying, you must believe the gospel plus do something else to be saved. Why did they insist on this? Well, certainly because circumcision was required as a sign and seal of belonging to the family of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. It's a sign of being a Jew and thus included as an heir to the promises given to Abraham and part of the everlasting covenant described to Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis. And while Jesus, as a Jewish man, had shown grace to individual Gentiles, he never spoke of abolishing circumcision as the sign that sets God's people and his promises apart from all other peoples of the earth. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself was circumcised. But these men in the Antioch church want circumcision to be more than just a sign and seal of God's people. They want to impose circumcision as a work to be performed in order to be made right with God, in order to be saved. And that's a problem. The Christians in Antioch knew that Paul and Barnabas had not imposed circumcision on Gentile believers in that church. They also knew Paul and Barnabas had not imposed circumcision on anyone who came to faith in Christ on their first missionary campaign. That brings us to verse 2 and their reaction. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Paul and Barnabas don't stand by and just watch this happen. Rather, they engage in the debate and guard the true gospel from the attack. Then they, along with others, are sent on their way to Jerusalem. This time, not to proclaim the gospel, but to defend it. The fact they are sent indicates that they went as the official representatives of the church in Antioch and are being supported in every way, including financially by the church in Antioch as they go. They travel 250 miles from Antioch to Jerusalem, and on the way brought the good news of Gentile conversions to their brothers in Christ, that is, to churches all along the way. When they arrive in Jerusalem, the church welcomes them, as do the apostles and elders, and they too heard all that God had done through them. But just as the message of the gospel had been opposed in Antioch, so too it was met with opposition here. Read along with me at verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The use of the word some at the beginning of verse 5 indicates a minority of not just the believers held this view, but these are not even representative of those who formerly identified themselves as Pharisees. Even so, this vocal minority slides back into the legalism of their Pharisee heritage and demands not only circumcision for salvation, but also keeping the law of Moses. To keep these requirements as they demanded would essentially make Gentiles convert to Judaism. 
in order to be saved. And push the grace brought by Christ in his life, death, and resurrection to the background. And instead emphasize the ceremonies, the sacrifices, and the laws of Moses. The very things Jesus came to fulfill. Look at verse 6 with me. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Luke's account of this meeting is not exhaustive. For he says at the beginning of verse 7, after there had been much debate. And then he picks out the highlights of three important speeches that brings the council to agreement. These speeches are first by Peter in verses 7 to 11. Second by Paul and Barnabas in verse 12. And the third and longest by James, Jesus' brother, in verses 13 to 21. In the very first phrase of Peter's last recorded words in Acts, he takes them back to the early days, as he calls them. He is speaking here of the incident in Cornelius' house recorded in Acts chapter 11. Probably about 10 years before, when the first, when for the first time, the gospel had been preached to a group of Gentiles. Peter reminds them that it was by God's choice that he brought the gospel to the Gentiles. And Peter doesn't just rely on his own testimony to these salvation events. No, he also invokes the authority of God, saying God bore witness by giving the Holy Spirit to these Gentiles, just as he had done to the mostly Jewish crowd in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Peter presses his point and challenges them further in verse 10. He says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. I'd like for you to notice the term that Peter uses for trying to be saved by keeping the Mosaic law. It is called a yoke. Paul made a similar statement in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. When speaking to the Galatian Christians, he said, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So both Peter and Paul speak of being under the law of Moses as being under the yoke of slavery. In this context, to bear this yoke is to keep the demands of the law. It is to try to gain the favor of God by keeping His law. Jesus said the law of Moses was summarized by two commands. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And He said the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments are summarized in these two. The entirety of the Mosaic Law, the moral obligations of the law, the temple sacrifices also are summarized in these two. Love God and love neighbor. The law commands us to do this all the time and to do it perfectly. This is the yoke 
the burden these promoting a false gospel are advocating. Peter says it's not possible to do this. And the history of generation after generation in Israel proves it. For he says, neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear it. When Peter does this, he is not denying that the law of God was good and holy and perfect. For it is a reflection of the very character of God himself. But Peter is making the case that it is impossible to be saved by merit or obedience to the law's demands. He says to do this, is to put God to the test. That is, to put Him on trial and challenge God's purpose and plan to justify Gentiles and Jews by faith in Christ alone apart from merit or obedience as it relates to God's law. Only one means of salvation ever existed for Jews or Gentiles and that is by grace through faith. That's why Peter concludes his speech with an exclamation point in verse 11. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. What a wonderful and concise statement of how we are saved. Salvation is not by our law keeping. It is through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And do you see how Peter makes the salvation of Jew and Gentile so clear? We will be saved. We are saved just as they will. Paul in the book of Galatians, when fighting the same battle in the Galatian churches, makes exactly the same point as Peter. Paul says this in Galatians 5 verse 2. Listen. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through Love. Given this unity around the central and core belief of the church of Jesus Christ regarding the gospel between the apostles Peter and Paul, it's appropriate that the second speech recorded in Jerusalem is by Paul and Barnabas. Look at verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. The fact the whole assembly fell silent suggests Peter's critics had nothing more to say. Luke then very briefly describes Barnabas and Paul's speech, which emphasized what God had done through them among the Gentiles. Both apostles, Peter and Paul, have gone down firmly on the side of a grace-based gospel, one free of works as a condition for salvation. This distinction has been a constant battleground for the church over and over. And over the centuries, it has taken many different forms. This meeting that took place in Jerusalem primarily involved the place of God's grace and man's works in human salvation, And as we just read, there was conflict. There always seems to be conflict when we talk about the way of salvation. There is a great difference of opinion about that way. 
And the greatest divide is between God's way and our own way or man's way, man's works. God's way is based on God's grace alone. The world's way in some shape or form involves us and our works and our good deeds in restoring our relationship with God. Often the world's way of salvation sounds something like this. Well, the good things I've done will outweigh the bad things I've done and God will let me into his heaven. As if somehow my good deeds can atone or pay or make up for my sins. That's blatantly and obviously works salvation. Another frequently heard salvation formula that the world uses today says it doesn't make a difference what you believe so long as you sincerely believe something. Because God will accept us just as we are no matter how we come to Him. In other words, God will accept my good works, whatever they happen to be, and whatever their object is. In this salvation formula, it doesn't matter who or what I worship, only that I do good works by worshiping someone or something. The Bible has a word for this. It's called idolatry. God says we must serve and worship Him alone and forsake all others. We must follow Him. Now, a little more religious version of this brings Christ into it, and it goes like this. I believe in Jesus, and He defeated death and Satan at the cross, but now I have to do some good works and participate in some religious ceremonies like baptism or confirmation or confession or communion in order to work my way to heaven. One of my very close relatives, when presented with the gospel, told me, well, that's too easy. I have to do something to please God. That's too easy. I have to do something. Well, that's kind of a cooperative salvation where Jesus does his part and you do your part. And as Pastor Pat likes to say, when you get to heaven, you and Jesus can get together and say, we did it. That's not going to happen. All of these are very, very wrong. They are biblically false. But nevertheless, that's the way the world thinks. It thinks that everyone is going to heaven even though they are traveling by different roads. They think all roads lead to God. And if they are religious people, it doesn't make a bit of difference which religion you may have as long as you have religion and good works. Now, the scriptures are completely opposed to this. But many people, most people, do not read the scriptures. And when they do read them, they read little bits here and there. And the very important truths of salvation miss them completely. And when they finally hear what the scriptures say, that we are sinners by nature and by choice, and we are unable to come to God on our own, unable to do enough good works to atone for our sins, they often are very, very upset. Their pride is trampled upon. Their sense of self-righteousness is attacked by the word of God. Paul makes this point in the passages we read earlier from Galatians when talking about circumcision. Paul, in effect, says that if you could believe in Jesus and be circumcised in order to be saved, then you would have some reason to boast because you had the intelligence and the determination and the will or the smarts or whatever it was to actually carry out this religious act of circumcision. And thus the work of salvation becomes partly the work of God and partly the work that I do. 
In fact, Paul was so upset over this kind of teaching that he wrote the Galatians that if anyone preached this kind of gospel, then let him be accursed. Now, that's very, very strong language. But he said it twice so we wouldn't miss the point. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's the Old Testament equivalent of saying, let him go to hell. It's that serious because the eternal destiny of people is at stake because the purity of the gospel, the true and one pure gospel is in jeopardy. It's not something you can take or leave. No, it's the most important issue of life. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that's at stake. Salvation by God's grace and not by our works, or rather by our works offends us because it calls for unconditional surrender by us to God. We must forsake all and follow Him. We must die to self and live to Christ. It's an offense to our pride because it reveals the exceeding sinfulness of our hearts and the fact we are headed for a Christless eternity due to the judgment of God on our very own sin. It causes us to rebel against God. And finally, it offends us because it says you must be born again. You must be born of God. That's what the Lord Jesus said during his earthly ministry. Jesus told the Pharisee Nicodemus, he was not qualified to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless born, one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Do you mean to say, Pastor Mike, that you have to agree with you on this in order to be saved? Well, let me tell you. The issue is not whether you agree with me. It was Jesus who said that. It was the Lord Jesus who said, you must be born again. And I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So really the issue is, do we believe what Jesus said? Or are we going to trust our own human ideas concerning salvation? Well, you might have thought, as we've been studying through the book of Acts, that the question of Gentile salvation had been settled back in Cornelius' house. After all, Peter said that everyone, meaning Jews and Gentiles, who believe in him, that is Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And then after that, Peter asked, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And so the Gentiles were saved through the preaching of the gospel apart from circumcision and also before they were baptized with water. These Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, were indwelt by the Spirit of God, a sure sign of salvation in Christ without being circumcised and before being baptized. The order is clear. They believed first and then were baptized as a sign and symbol of their new life in Christ, as a public declaration of their faith in Christ. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. For the Jewish believers, the issue was the gospel plus works for salvation revolving around circumcision. But for Gentile believers today, the issue of the gospel plus works for salvation revolves around baptism. 
We had a baptism here this morning. It's one of the ordinances of the church, commanded by Christ for every believer. The church is to baptize disciples, that is, believers in Christ, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we did that today. But no sins were forgiven here today in baptism. They did not go down into the water as sinners and come up forgiven. They were not saved by water baptism. Now don't get me wrong. Baptism is important. Christ commanded it. We should do it. But it is a sign and symbol of faith for those who have believed. It does not take the place of faith. It does not take the place of belief and trust in Jesus and plays no part in our justification before God. Rather, water baptism is a picture of our new life in Christ. We go down into the water. It pictures our dying to sin. And we come out of the water. That's a picture of our resurrection to life. It's a picture of our union with Christ, for He was buried in a tomb and rose again. The picture of our release from bondage to sin and our identification with Christ proclaims to the world we belong to Jesus and makes known what He has done for us. Are Gentiles or Jews required to believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus and then required to do some religious work or ceremony in order to be saved? The answer is no. That's the specific question here in Acts 15. And now we come to the third and longest speech in this section, verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied. This is James the brother of our Lord Jesus. Not James the apostle and brother of John who was killed by Herod at the beginning of Acts chapter 12. This James here in Acts 15 verse 13 did not believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry, but Jesus appeared to him after his resurrection. And now James has become a very important man in the church at Jerusalem. What would James say? Would he side with these Pharisees who believed, but who Peter and Paul said were wrong about circumcision? No. The text makes very clear. He comes down firmly in agreement with Peter and Paul and does so in a way that ties together the coming of the gospel to the Gentiles with Old Testament promises. And in so doing is an encouragement to Jewish and Gentile believers alike. The issue of circumcision and keeping the law of Moses was most radically pushed by these believing Pharisees But to be sure, many of the other Jewish believers in the Jerusalem church were sensitive to these issues as well and had questions. What these believers in Christ need is help. Help to understand the new reality of the gospel. And James is going to bring that help from the word of God in the form of teaching from the Old Testament prophets and then in godly wisdom, apply it to real life in the church. First, James is teaching from the scriptures. James graciously brings truth and comfort to them from God's word. For he puts the pure and true gospel and its coming to the Gentiles in the context of the unfolding history of God's people Israel. He tells them there is a place of blessing in all this for God's chosen people, for the Jews, that they are not rejected by God. That place of blessing was promised to them through the Abrahamic covenant through the covenant with David, and now through the new covenant in Christ, and will have its ultimate realization in the future when Christ returns. 
And so James goes to passages from the prophets, from Amos and Isaiah. And here he points out that God's dealings with Israel will ultimately result in blessings upon Israel. And out of those dealings will flow the flowering of worldwide salvation for Gentiles. Here James, starting in verse 13, as he quotes from Amos 9 and Isaiah 43 and 45, builds on what Peter, Paul, and Barnabas have said. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, he's referring to Peter here, that's the Hebrew name for Simon. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles, referring again to God's saving power in coming to Cornelius and his family and friends. How God, how, related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. And I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Let's unpack these quotes from the New Testament, or rather from the Old Testament. James is saying here that the salvation of the Gentiles was something planned in the purposes of God from the very beginning. And that God is using his people Israel to bring Gentiles to God. And these prophets, Amos and Isaiah, testify to that fact. After speaking words of judgment on Israel in Amos chapter 9, God speaks the words we have here in verse 16 of Acts 15. Saying that the greatest king of Israel... David has fallen. That is, the line of kings that were to come from David has collapsed like a tent in a storm and seemingly ended. The exile to Babylon and the enslavement of Israel made the promise of an everlasting king from the house of David look like a heap of ruins. Yet God will not let this stand. He is faithful and he gives a threefold response. God says through Amos and now through James, I will return, I will rebuild, and I will restore. What is clear from this side of the cross is that God has done that in the person of His Son, the God-man Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate and the true Son of David, who is the true and ultimate King. He is the true Israel. He did all Israel was commanded to do in keeping God's law, and now he perfectly represents God's people before the world as Israel was commanded to do. This Jesus sits at the right hand of God right now today. And at a time decreed by his Father, Jesus will return and consummate his kingdom and sit on the throne of David. And he will return, rebuild, and restore and rule over Israel, over the church, and ultimately rule as King of kings and Lord of lords over all of God's people forever. But James isn't quite done yet. For then in verse 17, quoting from Isaiah 43, he says, This happened to Israel so that all mankind would seek the Lord. Not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles also who are called by His name. In the language of Isaiah 43, God will call them from the north and the south, from the east and the west. God will call his sons and daughters from afar, from the ends of the earth. 
The Lord will gather all the nations and people together. They are to come by his servant whom God has chosen and his people are to be his witnesses. In Isaiah 43, the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, another title for Messiah, says he is the creator of Israel and king. He is doing a new thing, making a way in the wilderness and a river in the desert to deliver salvation from sin and bring living water and eternal life to the desert of hardship and death. This one will blot out their transgressions and remember their sins no more. And James concludes by noting these things are known from of old. This is the purpose and plan of God from the very foundation of the world. The fact Isaiah and Amos spoke of it at the urging of the Lord over 700 years before the fulfillment of these things in Jesus Christ proves it. There is a place for the Jews in God's plan and a place for the Gentiles. James continues in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. James is clear. In his mind, the Gentiles do not need to submit to circumcision or keep the law to gain salvation in Christ. To be a Christian does not mean believe in the gospel plus be circumcised or keep the law or do any external act or ceremony. The grace-based, works-free gospel is just that. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But now James goes on to propose to Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and all the others present wise and godly advice. Not on how to be saved, but on how Jew and Gentile can fellowship together in the peace and love of Christ. And he says in verse 20, we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, probably referring to food, and from sexual immorality, a common sin among Gentiles, and from what has been strangled and from blood, an important food law the Jews followed strictly. Verse 21, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. James suggests those gathered write a letter to the mostly Gentile churches telling them to avoid offending their Jewish brothers in Christ by abstaining from certain practices that are particularly offensive to Jews. And the combination of all four were likely related to some complex pagan idolatrous worship in which Gentiles who trusted in Christ were no longer to participate. And now in verse 22 and following, we see the leading of the Holy Spirit. The advice of James was agreed to by all and implemented amongst the Gentile churches. It should be noted that neither James nor Paul nor the Gentile Christians viewed these guidelines as demanding law observances meant to be followed in order to join the church. Rather, they were greeted with joy by the Gentiles, and we are told in Acts 16 they were carried by Paul well beyond the church in Antioch. Well, Jesus has taken his church a long way in the first 15 chapters of Acts. The gospel has gone from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and now it's on the threshold of going to the very ends of the earth. 
It has moved from Jew to Gentile along the way until by the end of Acts, the gospel will be firmly in place in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, really the capital of the world and the end of the earth in New Testament times. The gospel has faced opposition all along the way, from those outside the church and inside. And yet, despite opposition and even murder, it has gone forth and grown. It has grown in the power of the Holy Spirit with our risen and active and living Savior, Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, interceding for his people and for his church. We have watched God's purpose and plan set forth from before the foundation of the world come to pass under the mighty hand of God. But our mission is not yet complete because Christ has not yet returned. The mission of the church in Acts is our mission too. May we be about that mission of proclaiming the good news that Christ died for our sins and that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Him alone, we are saved. And remember his promise. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for these magnificent words which Luke has recorded for us under your guiding hand. We know, Lord, that through a salvation based on your wonderful grace, you have come to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, offering eternal life to all who will come and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We ask you to strengthen us as individuals and as your church to stand firm and proclaim your grace. And may we not corrupt it by adding baptism or works of any kind. And Lord, we ask you to use us as individuals and as Omaha Bible Church to bring sinners like us to yourself. For in love you sent your son Jesus to die for the ungodly. And we are the ungodly. Keep us humble before you, Lord. We pray, Father, for the return of our pastor, Pat Abendroth, to this pulpit and to our church next Sunday. We have missed him. We thank you for him and ask for your protection for he and his family. I pray he returns to us refreshed and strengthened for ministry that you would give him great insight into the truths of your word. I pray we as your body would be an encouragement to him and appreciate his love for us as he labors to bring us your word and proclaim Christ. I pray also, Lord, for your grace, mercy, and peace, that it may accompany us as we go from here and into the mission field you have given us, whether that be at work, in our neighborhood, with our family, or at school. May your blessing be upon us, and may we fulfill the mission you have given us as a church to be witnesses for Jesus Christ here in Omaha, in eastern Nebraska and western Iowa, and to the very ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.